Hello, this is the Plant Book Club. Okay, sorry. Uh, welcome. Um, today we have Judith and Melissa from Flora L Design. They make fantastic different textiles out of plant cells and it is such a cool um, company and project. I love to look at it. And then we have Yoram from Plants and Pipettes. We are missing Tegan today, um, but she left some notes for us to read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hi. Hello. So Yoram, do you, <laughs> do you want to tell us about the book we read this week, The Garden Jungle? <laughs> this week, it's been like, I don't know, three months or something. <laughs> Because like I think it's mostly on 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 me. Uh, I had so much happening last year in my life. I like we we stopped our own podcast and we stopped this podcast. It was all like put on on deep freeze, and now we're we're back at it again. Um, yeah, time is an illusion. But it gave it gave us enough time to read <laughs> Dave Golson's book, The Garden Jungle, or Gardening to Save the Planet. Um, According to the title, I'm just literally reading from the cover. It's a Sunday Times best bestseller, and um, I think yeah, I I suggested the book last time because I've seen another book from the author, but it was also only in French, and so I picked this one because this one is available in English. Um, it's from a British, uh, I think, professor for etymology. I or is it entomology? The one with the bugs. He's, uh, I think he's studying bumblebees in particular, according to the stuff that he says in the book. Um, and this book is all about the things going on in our gardens and the importance of it and what it means for us as a individual or also as a society. Like he makes pretty big pictures as well, like from very small scale stuff to very big scale stuff. Um, yeah, so I think that's in a nutshell what this book is about. Um, how did you all like it? Yeah, I can say something to it. <laughs> Hello, this is Judith. Uh, I I listened to the book uh, as an audiobook on my bike rides to work and back home, <laughs> and uh, I I enjoyed it. There were there were some pretty straightforward <laughs> criticisms in it <laughs> about uh, the British uh, horticultural. Not the horticultural society, but some stores and uh, mm -hmm. practices. So, and um, I think it was very interesting because it covered a lot of aspects about uh, basically what's going on in our gardens, from soil to bees to plants. Um, and it had always a nice recipe. So for me, listening to an audiobook uh, and every chapter is starting with a recipe when you are coming home hungry from work. It's, of course, perfect. You're even more hungry. But I, I enjoyed it. It was quite a long listen. Interesting you say that because it's kind of a short book. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's interesting how that translated. Um, I, I enjoyed, it was an easy read, um, an interesting read. I, it was very much bug focused <laughs> or insect focused, um, which I didn't really know much about, um, to start with. I know a lot more about plants than I do about insects. So there was a lot of just kind of basic diversity things that he was talking about that I had never really known about before, um, 
he he is like extremely opinionated and um <laughs> yes <laughs> like like other books we've read that had a more kind of academic bent are a bit more like show both sides or have a more balanced perspective this particular book you know like precisely what his point of view is and there were some times where i wondered well is this like a bit too biased um so i found myself kind of asking those questions at times um but it was yeah, it was a it was I it was kind of a quick easy read, I thought. Nice. Yeah. My favorite parts were definitely the bug parts and the kind of memoiry bug parts. There was a part where he talked about doing this experiment where he trapped a scientist came and trapped moths in his garden overnight and that part was fantastic. He caught a ton of different species of moths. It was very interesting. I loved that. I loved the part about the um let me see worms. That was great. Um, the he he's very um, UK focused. And like when I first started reading, I was like, okay, like this is a gardening book. The like England is the easiest place to garden in the world, basically. <laughs> like, <laughs> other like nothing really applies to anywhere else, especially because uh, here in the United States for like whatever like colonialism issues we have we try to grow all british plants and it goes terribly for us and so i was like all right so um you know he's able to grow his garden in his little moist island and nothing really applies (laughs) and then i kept reading and he agrees he's every time he mentions the united states he's like this hellscape like (laughs) he's like they dump pesticides from the sky and there's fire ants (laughs) he's like you cannot imagine (laughs) and so yeah (laughs) yeah so um yeah, it was interesting in that way getting, uh, I mean, honestly, it's not that an unusual perspective. Like, again, because of we all speak English, we read about England all the time. We watch movies about England all the time. Like, it's not an unusual perspective. But uh, yeah, it was uh, interesting if you have ever tried to garden in the United States. <laughs> but I think it was also interesting for from a UK point of view. And I'm like, I'm not a resident of UK. And unfortunately, Tegan can't be here with us who is actually in the UK and could be able to speak about this. But I think in the UK, you have a strong like garden culture in terms of also like pretty gardens, like lawn care and like very meticulously crafted gardens. And I think this is something that he directly addresses with this book. Of, of saying you, it's it's fine to let nature do its thing like you don't have to have a perfectly cut lawn all the time um, and in fact it would be much nicer if you would have different stuff uh, going on there and I think in, in that respect it's I mean yeah it's absolutely a British perspective but it's sort of counter gardening culture like counter the, the established gardening culture in the UK and I found that very interesting because a lot of it also applies in Germany I mean uh, we are like we have colder winters in the UK and like the climate is a little bit different but also like gardening is a big thing here in Germany um, and we also have to think that a lot of the gardens are very like meticulously kept clean with like trimmed hedges and neat rows of flowers and everything like that um, and so hearing all of these opinions about having wildlife in your garden i think what i specifically liked for example there's a whole part about earwigs and how earwigs are actually beneficial and many people are afraid of them or really try to get rid of them and poison them um, use all kinds of insecticides and 
just like the whole part, I, I found it surprisingly uh, interesting to learn about earwigs and their place in the garden and also changed my mind about them. Like it, I, I wasn't putting insecticides in my garden, but I wasn't too happy if I found them in my garden. If I like <laughs> picked up a rock and there were like earwigs and um, like these other little insects with a hard shell um, scuffling around. I'm like, oh no, they're eating my strawberries. And now I, I learned that it's fine. Like you, you pay them some strawberries, but you also like they also mm. eat a ton of the other bugs that are more harmful to your garden. Uh, so I found that very interesting. I found the earwig uh, chapter very interesting because I'm I have grown up with my grandparents hanging pods upside down filled with straw into their into the trees. So I've always had the impression that earwigs were something good <laughs> that you actually gave a place to live in your tree. And um, yeah, I I didn't know that people are doing something against earwigs. <laughs> this, Wait, why this, did you hang straw in your tree? I don't understand. It gives them a place to hide and to to live in. So you take like pods, uh, flower pods with a hole that you can put something through and make a, a hanger around a branch. And then you fill this with straw or something, some components where they can go in. They go in from the from the underside. It doesn't rain into this and they can live in there. So uh, they had this hanging in their fruit trees. And I always wondered why. And of course, as kids, we would say that they come and they eat your ears. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't <laughs> yeah <laughs> that has never happened so i i i thought there were some chapters where like oh my gosh are people really really doing this uh like dumping uh pesticides from airplanes and these stories that were there is like what's wrong with the world it was it was more that aspect that surprised me rather than the other side of everything that you can do, because I think I've, I've maybe read other things where where you notice that that maybe having a a, a well tended lawn is not the best way of uh, fostering biodiversity in your garden and the part on compost, for example. But there were some uh, chapters that really surprised me, especially when it came to the use of chemicals, chemicals in bee-friendly plants, uh, neurotoxins, and it's like. What the heck is going on in the world? So that was my, what I found uh, is like was sticking out for me when I was listening to this. Yeah, I remember reading those chapters. I think it, he was talking a lot about apples as well. And I eat an apple every day for my lunch. <laughs> and I really was just like thinking, oh my gosh, I should maybe be peeling my apple. And like, but I love <laughs> the peel too. But just like being more aware of chemicals that are probably used like I don't even know right what's done routinely to the food that I'm eating so it yeah that really um made me think a lot and got my my attention for sure that was towards the beginning of the book and then a lot of times throughout the book I was making connections to the last book we read which was the rambunctious garden and it had some similar uh, by Emma Maris and it had some similar themes about uh, the importance of encouraging biodiversity or like how we treat invasive species. Uh, towards the end of this one, he was talking about the idea of invasive species, how they're encroaching northward because of the shift in temperature and kind of saying like, oh, maybe we should just let that happen because that's going to buffer some of the changes in climate change. So um, a lot of times as I was reading this, when I was thinking back to the last book I read too, which had similar themes, but the the last book felt a bit more, um, again, I'll say like balanced in the perspective and, and less alarmist. Like I did find sometimes he, 
um, in this book, like really intentionally tried to shock. Like there was that one part where he listed, I think, every possible side effect from like a, was it a pesticide or something? Um, but I do know from reading like safety sheets in the lab, like if you read the safety sheet for salt, it's as shocking as, you know, some of these <laughs> chemicals. So I felt like that was like a little bit trying to, um, I guess, like sway or, or prove his own point, I guess, in a more alarmist way. I think that was also the part that bugged me the most in the whole book as the whole chapter about pesticides, because he's using like some of the stuff is like honest worry about the amount of pesticides that were used be it insecticides or herbicides um but a lot of it is like borderline pseudoscience really um if you look at sort of the the patterns of arguments that he's using he's like making like catering fear of the unknown like like you said like he uh either by just calling out like known side effect of chemicals or just calling them chemicals in general and listing how many chemicals are in certain cosmetics that has no like uh, meaning for or no importance for the risk assessment of a thing if you're just listing the number of chemicals that are in there and these are tactics that you use when you want to just give people fear about chemicals and I think that's really harmful. That's something that bo uh, bothers me a lot in science communication whenever people are sort of hiding things behind big words and he even says that like that some pesticides they have complicated words so we don't discuss them um, because they are so dangerous and this is just there's no no foundation to this like maybe that is a, like a small effect in it but like these these chemicals they just have these names because this is the names that we give if we don't give them a fancy trade name of course they will have the complicated chemical structure name um And all of these things made me like really uneasy, um, be because like also the, the the book doesn't have actually any sources listed, so you pretty much have to take his word for it. You can't read up on it. Um, some of the stuff you can look up. There was, for example, one thing where he says that um, glyphosate has been found in more uh, urine samples uh, from people, and I know that's like a German study. It's uh, from a from a German institution, um, and so I I looked up the study, and it's true that they found like uh, more uh, like traces of glyphosate and more urine samples than they did 20 years ago but the the limits the, the amounts that they found were still a thousand times lower than the applicable limit that's allowed uh, that, that that would sort of give you a, a clue about the exposure of glyphosate so they're like tiny tiny amounts that are barely detectable but you find them more often but he leaves out the tiny amounts he just says like oh we find glyphosate more often and then he goes on to the next point and to me these are like just bad science communication this is just, this is not how you should talk about such a topic and then because like pesticides it's it's complicated like it's not a clear cut um and this is the part that i, I really didn't like there um and i also i listened to the audiobook and i at that point like i, I pressed pause and i was also on my bike i cycled home and then i typed my notes furiously i was like and looking up the studies I'm like no you're wrong about this um so yeah also Some of them are for, some of the pesticides are for plant stuff and some of them, like some of them are to protect plants from insects and some of them are to protect people from diseases, you know, so yeah. I feel like that at least deserves, uh, and he did, he did mention it, but I feel like those deserve to be differentiated in a clear way, you know, also yeah. like for gardening and for agriculture and for diseases, 
those different pesticides, I feel like they should be different. Although, again, it merits discussion. I'm not saying that these are great because they're obviously not. But um, yeah. I also, that made me uncomfortable. I also have to mention before we move on with the Apple thing that he did mention Nikolai (laughs) Vavilov, (laughs) which all of, nearly all of our books have. (laughs) We stamped our bingo card for our listeners who have not listened to the rest of our episodes. Nikolai Vavilov was a Russian or I guess USSR uh, botanist and geneticist who did a bunch of research into like wheat and made it a lot better and is the way he uh stalin killed him because he stalin disagreed with him but now the science that Vavilov did is the reason a bunch of us are able to eat now because he did a good job um so shout out to Vavilov. (laughs) 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 all of our books mention him and they're like this is very very esoteric knowledge but I cheered when I saw his name and I had to explain to my husband who Vavilov was. I'm like, I need it in every book. Uh, yeah. Just one more thing about the, oh, sorry, about the pesticides. Um, there was one line where he just said that maybe this increase in chemicals is why there's so much autism now. Oh, I'm yeah. paraphrasing. That wasn't the Oof. exact line, but it, it was to that extent and that just really I thought oh man this is that's irresponsible really like you Mm -hmm. can't just say stuff like that and throw it out there with no discussion of facts like that just Mm -hmm. didn't feel good yeah yeah I I think and I think this is where really his bias comes through like he he is a strong uh, opponent of pesticide use and he is not afraid to use any sort of weak argument that he can find to just build his case and there's like some strong points in there as well but there's like a lot of it it's also just like hearsay like he has a whole thing where he goes about like flea collars for dogs and cats and how they maybe are extremely dangerous but it's all like very speculative there's no data uh, presented on it there's no studies on it it's just like his back of the envelope calculations how toxic these things are and it's like i don't know like in some like at a coffee break with some academics or at a conference you can bring up topics like this and discuss them but writing them in a book mixed with like things that are proven by studies and things that are just hearsay or speculations i also find that irresponsible I thought uh, there was one part where he um where they picked flowers they 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 bought flowers from the different gardening centers and that was his own study because there he was working with his own student and I found that very interesting because you know I also buy bee friendly plants for my garden and the first thing that I found was interesting had nothing to do with the chemicals, but he said that they were classified in many different places. Some were classified as bee-friendly and others not. And you go to another place where you have other classifications. So the whole classification of that something is bee-friendly isn't so rocket science <laughs> as you could think. Uh, but then the other part was that they, they picked these bee-friendly plants and they extracted chemicals from that and did analysis and they found Um, pesticides on them that are not good for bees and that I found was very surprising and then I was wondering if this has changed because he said that he made efforts to to go to the uh, whoever the um, what we say institution is that needs to regulate that 
And uh, now this book was published, if I remember where, 2018. Is that right? Yeah, yeah he's talking yeah. a lot of the numbers he's mentioning are 2016. 16, yeah. 16, so yeah, it's 18. like 2019 is, I think, is the publishing date, yeah. but a lot of the stuff that he's referencing yeah. is a little bit earlier from that. And I was wondering if there has been any change in that use of chemicals in bee-friendly plants, because that, of course, is like, why are we doing this? Um, is that is that the right way of of proceeding? And in the end, his recommendation is if you want bee-friendly plants, go into your local gardening center and see where the bees are on those plants and these ones you can buy. <laughs> Which, yeah, if you find bees in your gardening center, that may be the just the best thing <laughs> to do. Yeah, and I think this is worth mentioning, like here in the United States, where again, a lot of us, you know, I grew up trying to grow lawns and other British plants like poppies and dahlias or whatever. Um, the best thing to do if you're trying to make like a natural pollinator garden is to just grow what's there and then try to weed the invasive species out or the species you don't like because they're prickly or whatever. Um, which again is like a personal preference. You probably don't have to do that, but um so, yeah, and I'm sure you could do the same thing in England and just see what comes up and then pick up the pick out the things you don't want and then it's automatically neo what is it neocorticoid free? <laughs> uh, yeah, or neo neonicotinoids, neonicotinoids. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, also like he's a big proponent of plant trading like between sort of hobbyists um just taking cuttings and trading these because there you have you, you know better that they are not grown with pesticides or are under like a lot of these like growth centers they use lots of resources like like uh electricity for for lights and and cooling and heating and everything so just from an ecological standpoint it's much better to trade with friends or within like gardening circles and so on so i quite like that as well so there are certainly uh, things in there that i i enjoyed as as advice for people who care about their garden yeah, I really loved the ways he connected like citizen science into his book, um, talking about different ways that um, different parts of the country would do counts for certain types of insects and, and finding lots of different ways to get people just engaged in looking at the diversity around them and looking at their gardens for what's there. Um, I really appreciated those types of stories when he was talking about the lady... Um, who sent him the bugs in the box, like his, his old neighbor had sent him a sample of bugs she found to try figure out what they were. And they spread all over the inside of his house. And that was kind of a, it, it was a kind of a cute story. Um, but I guess the <laughs> bugs were Harlequin ladybirds, which mm. were very invasive. So he had to run around killing them. So I, I like the citizen science parts. And I did like some of the personal stories. I thought he sounds like a very eccentric interesting person like some of the things i just thought oh my this this guy <laughs> he <laughs> sounds different in some ways i mean he he ha he owns a huge meadow in france um that's like the french book that i found actually was about the story of his meadow that he owns in france and the, the wildlife that he sees there he has like I think he says at one point, I think 160 square meters of garden, I think just for the apple trees or something like this, like a portion of his garden is sort of this size. And like he makes his own cider and, and cheeses and like lots of different things. Um, yeah, and I think eccentric is, is the right description. 
<laughs> that sounds fun. Yeah, I would. I feel like I would have liked his other books more than this one because, again, the pesticide parts and the other parts about gardening, which weren't always relevant, were the most annoying parts to me. And I, the parts I loved the most were like his experiences with his passion, which is obviously insects. And so, like, I feel like I would really like that book and his other books, which are about bees. How, like, the, the tagline of the book is gardening to save the planet. And I think it's mostly, like, it's, it's sprinkled throughout the book, but there's a bigger chunk at the end of it as well. Uh, what do you think about all of that, uh, sort of his ideas for us as a society uh, and the role that, that gardening can play in there? I mean, this is what I write about a lot. Like, I have... Um I have here uh, Doug Tallamy's book, which is the same thing, similar idea, basically, except it's he's American, so it has different advice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's really important. At least here, a lot of the land is privately owned, so um, there's only so much that public lands can do. So I feel like it is relevant We're in a biodiversity crisis. <laughs> I thought he... He mentioned so many different things in his book that can be fun to do with children, that can be fun to do for yourself, just being more aware what's happening in, in, your, in your garden is also very interesting, opening the eyes for the biodiversity that there is, even if you have a lawn or even if you're not doing it the optimal way. So I thought it had, it had a good point because it, um, it informs people that they can be you can do a lot of different things. You can benefit from them because you can eat all these things. That's how the recipes are like uh, woven into the book that usually he addresses something that uh, in the chapter with the, with the ingredients that were in the recipe. Um, and yeah, I think that if, if you would pick only one thing from the book and that would be doing your own compost instead of buying soil that has peat in it that is uh, millions of years old and it's harvested. So the, I think you can do, we all can do better. And even though he's very opinionated, sometimes I find this refreshing because I often find that as a scientist, as an academic scientist, you're supposed to not have an opinion, which can be very boring. So, <laughs> of course, as reading this as a scientist, you, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that's maybe not all entirely true. Um, on the other hand, he is having a very, he, he's very engaged in this topic and he wants more people to do better through their gardens and uh, yeah that I think that is a good it's a good initiative for him to have written this book to have informed about all the bugs even though it's not all the time well founded and it would be better be referenced um, but I think if you just picked a few things from that we all could do something for biodiversity and it may not be like culturing something in a little mini pond that is going to smell terrific. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is it all right if I read what Tegan said? Yeah. She sent us some notes. She wasn't able to come today. Um, she said she agreed with us and that she wants some references, not just footnotes, because she said she wasn't sure if it was a fact or him exuberantly believing, which doesn't scare quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I love his exuberant believing. Um, 
And yeah, she says he has this exaggerated way of speaking, which made her go, um, what, no, um... And then, but she said, sometimes you read on and he corrects himself anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. Yes, Tegan. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. (laughs) What I had something else that like, and I think I'm coming off a little bit as a grouch for for this book, but I mean, Judith, you just said that like, we all can learn something from it, but I think only a certain privileged group can learn from it because that's people who have access to gardens and are able-bodied to tend to these gardens and have the time to tend to these gardens Um, because some of the points he makes is just like buy more organic food so that's expensive and not available to to everyone or grow your own food which is hard if you are a single mother living in a city how can you grow your own food just time wise even if you have like a shared allotment where you can grow some plants and then like he mentions how much he gets from his land and it like for some of his crops he doesn't ever have to buy anything but not for all of them and he has like as i said like a particularly big bit of land and apparently enough time on his hands to to tend to it and and care for it and that is something that I found like a little bit, it reminded me of the perspective that you sometimes find with certain scientists. I think because they understood one complicated thing in the world that whatever they learn about some other parts of the world applies to everything else as well because they they are the smart people. And so like his smart opinion is just like buy organic produce or make it yourself, which is like on so many reasons can't scale in the system that we currently live in also like he says yeah we can just use less pesticides because we have enough people available that don't really have work so they can go on the fields and (laughs) pick the the, the herbs by hand that we want to get rid of and like on paper at the first glance that sounds like a fine idea but who really wants to put like force people back into the fields to pick out the weeds that we don't want to have in our crops like who wants to do the work and who wants to pay for the work these are all things that only at very first glance work and i had the feeling that like because he has like this land and his excitement for his land and i don't don't know how he does it with like childcare and a job and everything but he manages (laughs) i i could not i don't have a full-time job and i could not grow my own food just time-wise um but he seems to be able to it and because he thinks he's able to do it everybody is able to do it and that's clearly not true and i found that like a little bit disappointing because there, there are i think gardening plays an important role but he stresses too much the aspect of just do it yourself grow your own crops um and to me, the importance of gardens is rather the diversity aspect, rather the sort of sanctuaries for wildlife um, to sort of recover from the agriculture that we do around it. And probably also, like, we'd certainly have to change agriculture as well. But I don't think we change agriculture by forcing people to weed by hand again uh, in large enough numbers because we we don't want to use any pesticides or um, yeah, want to, to abandon the farming that we're currently doing. Yeah, I totally agree. This is kind of, this was kind of my issue with the book as well. Like, I work in a community garden, as we've spoken about before, and I can't grow edibles. I'm head of the plant committee, so I get to choose what we grow, which is great. But we can't grow edibles because uh, the garden has a bunch of lead in it. And if we grow edibles, then the dust will splash back and contaminate whatever we grow. Um, So... Yeah, stuff like that. He has a very rarefied position, and I'm not sure if he realizes it. Because, again, England is a really easy place to grow plants, generally. And so he has space. 
He has space to compost and like you said, grow all these different things. He has, like you said, time. Like these are quite <laughs> unusual things. And yeah, beyond what you said, Yoram, it's just <laughs> like he he doesn't he doesn't have a lot of advice for, you know, people who are not trying to who don't own a French meadow. <laughs> 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 I kind of yeah, I kind of raised my eyebrows when the line came. It was like, and in the French land, I owned. I was like, what? You also own a front, like a farm in France? I was like, okay, this is a different scale than like a, a backyard, like <laughs> meter square plot, right? Um, I think though that there is something to be said for trying to maybe have like a positive message and in some way to tell people like there are things you can do even if it's small maybe there's things worth doing or things worth trying because it can feel so demoralizing I guess or like so out of your own grasp to do anything about it so maybe if it is as simple as just planting like a a flower pot on your balcony that has a bee friendly flower maybe Maybe that's something that helps. Maybe it doesn't help, but it, at least it's encouraged someone to do something with the awareness of the problem and and try something positive to move forward to try fix it. So I think there's, I appreciate his opinion of trying to say that there are small things that we all can do, and I appreciate his uh, views of trying to um, educate like the general public. I would say it's very much an accessible book to the general public. So to educate people on what some of the problems are and what can be done to fix it. And even if it isn't things you can do yourself, I like to think if more, more people are aware, it might lead to bigger policy changes or, you know, changes in the government bodies that control things like pesticides and whatnot. So it might have a bigger impact than just the small tasks that an individual could mm -hmm. or couldn't do. And I agree with that. And I also think that this book has a very clear target group, which are people with gardens. <laughs> so, <laughs> so those people, of course, can improve something and can reflect upon what they do. Uh, he takes up how many people in the UK have access to a garden. Um, he also mentions when he gets into this part where he suggests that we should all grow like yeah, our own food and there's uh, people that could be employed in weeding. Um, I think he mentions that what what was the period of time was it after the war where uh, people grew from community gardens 10% of the of the food that was needed which I thought was a lot but of course then it's only 10% if you take that 90% are coming from somewhere else um but I I found it interesting and I think that it has not the focus to um Yeah, it hasn't really focused on showing how people who don't have a garden can do. Like, what can you do with a balcony that you could, of course, you could buy a, a small growing lamp and grow some microgreens in your kitchen without having a garden as well. That isn't the purpose because it's the purpose is still biodiversity and he's coming from the insect point of view. Um, also, microgreens, yeah. like... <laughs> they don't have calories that's what i always no no but you still you still get you still grow something because he also gets into this point of that that growing and interacting and being in the garden that actually people was it people above 60 i think that had a garden they were more healthy than than people that didn't 
and why we don't know, but that that changed or that wasn't visible in younger people, but for for people at a certain age, it makes a difference. So it was both, yeah, the awareness, the aspect for biodiversity, and also the awareness of of the food itself, because he mentioned that the food doesn't need all to be perfect. When you have apples that are not completely perfect, you can still use them. So even that created awareness that if you grow something yourself, you will see that it may not look like what comes from the supermarket and you can still eat it. Um, in, in that way, I think it reaches maybe a wider pers- like wider group of people, but uh, I found it was very much written for people who have a garden and can relate to that. Yeah. I think what what bothered me so much is that he's sort of extrapolating from his experience to, uh, as a, a general rule, he says, like, we should convert farmland to community gardens and, like, give it back to more people. And, like, I'm I'm a communist. I like, like, re-giving re- giving the stuff back to the people on the land. But if you just, like, he even gives numbers f- uh, himself for the harvest, like, that he has. And pretty much the only really starchy... Um, uh, crop that he has sort of the something that that's nu- nutritious in terms of like covering your calories he gets like 95 kilograms of potato and i just looked up and according to like some random website uh, online the average person single person in the united kingdom eats 103 kilograms so statistically with all of his gardening he can't even cover one person's potato consumption um plus he has like lots of vegetables and greens and and so on but some of them make you like uh, give you some calories. They they have some nutritional value, but not all of them. And I so like seeing that. I'm like, yeah, that's a cool hobby. It's cool to have like some of your crops. Like I I eat like tomatoes and and zucchini from my own garden uh, every summer, and I like that. But I would never pretend that what I do from my garden is enough to feed me and that more people should do the same thing and then we would have enough to feed the people because we wouldn't have that and that i think is this was bug me like if you would stay within the same like hey if you have access to a garden here is the coolest way to run your garden so it's good for diversity and you also get something out of it you save some money you'll be you'll be healthier so if you have access to a garden that's cool and it, maybe you can try to get access to a garden but then he like he has to open the bigger picture and i don't know why he did that but then he tries to give this as a general rule for society and that's where i think it it then like falls on his face because it just doesn't work i like he really is just pro bug which i love about him he (laughs) comes from a place of joy the joy he takes in earwigs and ants and worms and moths which i love i also find a lot of joy in those things but yeah, sometimes he just takes it too far on behalf of the bugs, which honestly, if you're going to pick something to be on like <laughs> on the side of, bugs aren't a bad option. But yeah, sometimes he maybe takes it a little too far, which is fine. They need an advocate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, from, I, I can give you my perspective from living in Sweden, where all of our vegetables, like if you go into the store and you try to not buy vegetables from Spain... Where I don't know if you're aware how it's grown there. <laughs> Maybe tell us, if you're I have not, no you can you can go on to Google Maps and uh, search for Almeria, and then look a bit at what it looks like. It's a, a countryside, or it's a <laughs> a place of plastic greenhouses. It's covering, and that's what we eat. And then I say that's where it's transported from. That's where we eat 
basically all everything that we eat. Well, there are some Swedish vegetables, but it's not much. Red beet and potatoes and cabbage we can find local and carrots. But everything else comes from there. So I think, yes, we can do something by growing even, and we can grow pretty much zucchinis here that are not imported from there. Yeah, and <laughs> so cabbages. Of course, like... it's, it's, out, it's out season, but that is the problem. You, you can grow it in the summer and the summer is short here. But isn't it worth making the effort if you have the possibility? Because if we all, if we all do something, um, and I know there's a lot of community gardens where there's just growing herbs because nobody is tending to it. And that, of course, may be good for biodiversity. But then you think that there is more potential for us to use what we have and maybe not to have lawns, but to, to, to put down two raised beds and grow something that you can harvest so you don't need to buy it. And the whole point of interacting with, with growing food has like for for our family also made that you grow it so you don't want to throw it away. So you start to value the vegetables that you grow in a different way. Um, that's not much mentioned in the book, I think, but I think that has had the effect on me. And um, it all depends also where we are living. If you're living in a, like in France, for example, where there's a lot of vegetables grown very close to you and you can buy everything local, it may be less having an impact. But if you live further away where everything is important imported from far away places then thinking about what could I actually grow myself even if it's just a bit that that could it can make if we all do something small <laughs> that makes a big effect anyway even if we're not feeding ourselves with with only our own products but maybe part of the year we can have that yeah I mean as Y'all obviously know we are in a biodiversity crisis in terms of our the species that we can grow as food as well as, you know, just a general biodiversity crisis. And so we use, what, like three species. And there's a lot of species, especially here in the United States, that aren't common and people don't generally know about. You can grow them in your yard and eat them. And they're really interesting. So if you're listening to this and you haven't done this already, I recommend uh, Googling like, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables that are, are native to your area and checking those out. If you can get access to them, it can be pretty cool. And some things are not shippable, but grow well in your area. And so you can taste things that maybe you've never tasted and they're good and mm. fun to grow. Although like in, like my part of Germany where I'm living, like Berlin and the surrounding area, we have very sandy soils. So we get cucumbers and cabbages as sort of the classic local stuff. Then at one point, potatoes were introduced um, and that's about it. Um, <laughs> so it's a very boring diet. I mean, I can grow some zucchini. I can grow some stuff in my garden for myself. Um, that's not really local, like it's not what you typically would grow here, but there's some some stuff available. Um, but yeah, there there are limits. Like you always have to balance out between like, do you want like a very diverse diet with exciting stuff, or do you want to have it super regional? And depending where you live, this might then have some downsides. Uh, I mean, I I like to travel to France often, uh, not that often, but like I've been there a couple of times. I was always amazed at the markets there, but then like that you get like the, the street markets, the stuff that you can buy there, all the, the diversity in, in fruit and veg. Uh, but then I have to remember like this is significantly further south than Germany. 
So you can get a lot of really cool vegetables growing locally there that I can't get here in Berlin because the summers are too short, the, the, the soil is too poor. So we can't really do that in a sustainable way. And that also plays into like the thing of like transport. Like if you look at the actual sort of carbon footprint, transport is often the smallest part of things. So growing locally in a heated greenhouse is much worse than growing it in a polytunnel in, in Spain and transporting it. I'm speaking for Europe here. Um, so it's it's all very very complicated uh, but yeah but coming back to the book i think you were all right like doing like if you have the possibility like having some sort of like diversity benefit for your local environment by tending to your garden in a certain way is definitely a good thing to learn from this book what did you think about the ants the whole chapter about ants i want i want to go <laughs> i want to go into this chapter because oh, i loved uh, the ant chapter but i was also like i know so many people who write well about ants like i enjoyed it but i was also like it's kind of like eating like a chocolate mousse like i know i'll always love it but like <laughs> i have had better probably like <laughs> 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 I just remember reading it and thinking that he was, like Ellen said, so pro-bug because I've had like times where ants have destroyed some plants in my garden, some really nice flowers that I liked, and I just didn't think it was fair to say that, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, oh, that's so great that ants have a home, but they ate my favorite plant. So, <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. And I just remember the... I'm with you a bit, Yoram. I don't remember so much about the ants, but I do remember thinking, but I still don't really like ants. And I didn't like the part where he said ants were like degrading his house and he just watches the ants go back and forth while they're degrading the inside of his walls. I thought, oh, this is too much. <laughs> I thought it was very zen, like you just wait for the ants to devour you. <laughs> I mean, it ends the, ch ends the chapter with like, yeah, if we're all gone, the ants will still be there. Uh, so I think that's his mindset. <laughs> the ants were very interesting in how they were like one ant population would move out of their, what do you call that, stack? Not hive. And another one would move in and how they are like milking different other insects. I knew that they do with, with lice that I have here on my... <laughs> on my scented piece every year but uh i thought it was it was very fascinating i i haven't read any ant books and they're also living in one of my raised beds and eating up everything so nothing is growing there but i got a different perspective to the ants that there is much more diversity than i thought and i knew about and uh, that they are maybe well some of them have really complex um ways of living how they yeah how they need to move into a, a freed up uh, stack of another population and then they need to be close by a certain bug that they can milk and when we take the trees away that that bug disappears and so the ants are threatened so uh, i i thought that was a yeah was a chapter where i i learned a lot and there were other chapters about a lot of bees <laughs> I always needed to stop my bike. I needed to Google the thing so that I knew what he was talking about <laughs> because it's just names for me and not knowing what they were looking like was, um, yeah, was cool. And he was also talking about building bee hotels and, yeah. 
that is also for somebody who wants to maybe just put up something on their wall uh, and doesn't have a garden but is still living in a house or has a tree somewhere outside where they want to put up something. I never thought that these things worked when you buy them in a in the store, but uh, he had some tips of how you could do your own. The little ants toys where you, what are those called? Where you have the, the jelly or dirt and the ants dig tunnels through it. Is that what you're talking uh, about? The, the ant farms. Ant farms. Yeah. 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 yeah that part yeah. was great. Yeah. I also love the part where there's one ant species and another species takes over where they were living. And then there's a third ant species that then takes over where that, other species was living mm. and so in order for the third species to exist two other species will have had to live there beforehand so that was incredible to me yeah <laughs> so do you yeah. want do you have anything else to to say for this book or should we go for the ratings i'm ready for ratings <laughs> I me am too. too okay i think three out of five fire ants for me i was gonna say three and a half worms <laughs> <laughs> I give it, hmm, I think I give it four, but what do I give it? Four of the funny moss. <laughs> that I don't know the name of because I've only listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm t torn between the giving it two points for the very bad science communication parts, but then also like some parts deserve four points because they're actually generally exciting and interesting if you have a garden. So I probably I settle in the middle as well and take give it uh, three out of five difficult to pronounce chemicals uh, on some label <laughs> on your shampoo bottle. Um, because yeah, I think there's there's some good stuff in there. You just have to be really vigilant about the stuff that's not that great. So I don't know if I would recommend this to like people who don't know a lot about the topic I, I think it's good for people who have some interest in some of the topics already have some prior knowledge and want to extend their point of view a little bit but not somebody who will just take this as an expert opinion and follow every word because i think there is some detrimental stuff in there as well yeah also british people specifically <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so what are we reading next Yes, I had a suggestion that we could read The Forest Unseen by David George Haskell, which was a book which was recently recommended by my uh, former PhD supervisor, who has recently published his own book. So he said it was very inspiring to read this. It was poetic and the science was good. So I'm curious and feel free to read along with us and to meet with us again when when we have read the book in half a year. <laughs> yeah. no, we, we don't even dare to say in a month anymore. Because we all know it won't be a month. It will be something between one and six months. Sometimes in the collapsing future. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, where can, like, if, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they reach you? Ellen, maybe we start with you. Yeah, I mean, you can you can reach me at my Instagram at Ellen Airplant. Um, yeah, it's probably as good as place as any. <laughs> <laughs> and you can reach Melissa and me at uh, on Instagram on flora.l.design or on our webpage at flora-l.com. 
And you can reach me and Tegan uh, on Plants and Pipettes. Uh, we're currently in the process of restarting our own activities there as well. So check out that, plantsandpipettes.com and also like on the socials, Mastodon, Twitter, whatever. We're also there with Plants and Pipettes. So thank you all for listening and goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. The opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Vogue. You can find the music on Bandcamp where it is published under a Creative Commons license 3.0.